Well, as I mentioned earlier, our passage today is Hebrews chapter 12. I want to encourage you to turn there with me and stand as we read from God's holy inspired authoritative word. It is life for us today. Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 13. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat right down, or I should say sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives." If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down, the feeble knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for what we have read here. Thank you that uh, we are the joyful recipients of, of this entire scripture. And Lord, we have such a blessing of being able to see those who've come before us, to see the examples that were listed last week, uh, to know the end of the story in many respects. And so we pray that you would give us hearts of faith and ears ready to listen today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this chapter of Hebrews answers the profound and often asked question, why do bad things happen to God's people? And undoubtedly, that was the question the Hebrews were asking after they read the author's earlier words, words which you'll perhaps remember from last week as they occur in verse 13 of chapter 11. Remember, those all died in faith, all is the word there, not having received the promises. So now one of the examples of faith listed in chapter 11 received fully the promise, and many died violent deaths. And so the Hebrew Christians themselves facing difficult persecution, being exiled from synagogues and alienated from family, friends, many losing their jobs, had gone into hiding, suffering from rejection, isolation. They began to feel the heat of what it means to live out faith in Jesus Christ with boldness. And their experience was certainly not unique to them as Christians, the Apostle Paul also suffered much as a believer, even though he knew joy, 
Now, we read so much about what he suffered. We also read him often saying that he was a person filled with joy. And you say, how do you put those two together? Well, Romans 12, 12 helps us where he says, rejoicing in hope and being patient in trial. That hope freed him to embrace suffering. Suffering he would never have chosen, right? Apart from the hope of his own resurrection and eternal life in God. It was a future hope for himself, for those who he ministered to, and that's why he suffered. And if there's no resurrection either of Christ or believers, Paul would say, then he was a fool's most to be pitied. But, but he had that assurance of hope that we see at the beginning of chapter 11, the assurance that made him willing to undergo these various trials with joy. That's how you connect those two together. Because I think sometimes when we hear the word joy or we use the word joy, we equate that word with the word happiness. And usually it's the kind of happiness that we in our flesh would envision, right? Wealth or comfort or any number of things that make us happy. But that would not equate, for example, with Paul's words in Romans 5.3, where he says, I, in fact, he says, we rejoice in our afflictions. We rejoice in our afflictions. Why? Because we know that affliction produces endurance. And endurance produces sincerity. And sincerity produces hope. That sounds a little more like our passage today, where we read that this painful chastening that the author acknowledges doesn't seem to be joyful in the moment, does in fact result in something good. So welcome to the family of faith. Anybody want to sign up? When you enter into the family of God, you will receive the condemnation of the world to one degree or another. If you don't, then you should be concerned. And that's why you need the sustaining assurance of hope that God rewards those who seek him. Again, something we talked about last week in chapter 11. But also, as chapter 12 reveals, it is the hope that as we do suffer, that there's a greater purpose and benefit behind it. Verse 5 tells us that behind our trials is the chastening of the Lord. And some of your Bible translations, instead of chastening, have discipline. It's a much better translation of the Greek word paideia. Paideia literally means to train a child. And for those of you who have the New King James Version and have the word chasten, I think that's an unfortunate choice because we usually equate chastening with punishment. But paideia, which is the Greek word, balances a positive end, which is maturing children to integrity and virtue, with a negative means causing pain in the short term. Right? So it has a positive end, a negative means, uh, just enough pain, enough redirection to be guided towards those things that are better. And so verse 9 says, loving fathers discipline their children, train their children to love what is right and to hate what is evil. And I want you to make a very clear distinction here between divine punishment and divine discipline. Okay, if you, when you hear the word discipline and chastening and so on, if you're thinking punishment, it's important that you get that out of your brain as quickly as you can because God's people can and will never be personally punished for their sins in the full sense. 
at least in a judicial sense, because God has already unleashed his wrath against our sin on the cross. We are told that Jesus bore in his body our sins, our sins, on the cross, and that the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And so when the, when the author of Hebrews speaks about divine discipline, that's not punishment for sin, but rather a discipline that relates to your sanctification. Or as verse 10 says, a discipline that makes you a partaker with God in holiness. And in verse 11, yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. See, God has laid the burden of your sins upon Christ, which takes care of your eternity, but he desires in the meantime to conform you more and more to the holiness and righteousness of Christ. And that will bring you long-term benefit, long-term blessing, long-term usefulness to the kingdom. And so when you're disciplined by God, it is not because Jesus somehow didn't bear all of the punishment for your sin upon the cross. It is rather intended so that you will enjoy his blessings and be useful to the kingdom of God. So in punishment, condemnation is the goal, right? Retribution, condemnation, in discipline, righteousness is the goal. So before we go any further than that, let me also make one more important distinction, and that is, while God is sovereign, not all suffering is directly caused by God, even though it is allowed and ordained by God. So for example, in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 4, Paul says, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. And for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. Now, the tempter was none other than the devil, right? And some tribulation that we face is a temptation of the devil against us. To say that God is sovereign is to say that God rules over all things, including the devil, including Satan. He may be allowed some free action. But he is never allowed enough to thwart God's purposes, and he's never allowed to do something freely in the sense that God has not ordained it. Now, sometimes our suffering is caused by the evil acts of men, as prompted by Satan, as prompted by the flesh. This too, though, is used and ordained by God. And don't forget that even supposedly random events of suffering are under God's sovereign direction. I mean, if you think about the case of the blind man in John chapter 9, remember there that when Jesus and the disciples passed by this blind man who had been blind from birth, the disciples asked him a, a very logical question. It would have been asked at that time. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was commonly thought in that time that if you were born blind, it was because of sin, either you or your parents' generational sin that resulted in this because of course, most people would be born seeing. And Jesus' surprising answer was, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but so that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. This particular man who has suffered a lifetime of blindness, probably 20, 30 years or more, has become a beggar, 
has weathered the insults of his fellow Israelites who view blindness and other sicknesses as being the result of sin. So he, all, he always walks around with the shame and the condemnation of his fellow countrymen that he is, or his parents, were sinners. All so that one day Jesus might miraculously heal him and Jesus would be glorified. Of course, the man was blessed also, right? Because... He followed after Jesus, now lives for eternity and partakes of the holiness of God. But with that foundation laid, this afternoon I want to cover three specific goals that God has in disciplining us, given that understanding of of how God is sovereign over all things, even the random things that happen are to bring him glory, And how there is a benefit to be had, we need to discover what is that benefit. So there are three goals in discipline. The first is this, to correct us. Remember, you're not experiencing the full wrath of God against sin. But sin does harm you. It can devastate your life. Even as a believer, it can render you useless in the service of God and rob you of joy and peace and produce shame, all kinds of things that God wants to save you from. And so as an earthly father corrects a child not to hurt that child, I don't know any father that would say that they discipline their children to hurt them or retribution, at least any um, God-glorifying father, right? Our heavenly father in the same way disciplines us, and that discipline, as the author admits, can be painful. And it's intended to be. It would not accomplish its purpose if it were not. That's hard to accept sometimes with regard to discipline. You know, we all want the discipline that's comfortable. Uh, We all want the padded pants, right, (laughs) when it comes to discipline. But discipline is meant to be painful because it won't accomplish its purpose unless it's not. But God in his infinite wisdom and perfect love will not ever over-discipline us. And he will never discipline us for the wrong reasons or self-centered reasons. He will never allow any adversity in our lives that is not ultimately for our good and for his glory. A good illustration of corrective discipline is probably God's response to David's sin in the Old Testament. You know David committed adultery. He violates his own marriage, his vows to his wife, He violates his nation and his rule as a king. And more than that, he works it out to the Bathsheba's husband. Uriah was one of his most dedicated followers, one of the mighty men uh, that are listed in in Samuel and in other books. Uh, One, in fact, who fights is right now in this story fighting a battle on behalf of his king is left alone purposely and intentionally by David to be killed in battle without protection. And so David becomes responsible not only for adultery, but murder. And then the floodgates of discipline open up. The Bible says that God told David that the sword will never leave your house. You're going to need to learn that you cannot act like this. You cannot conduct yourself in this way and expect no consequence. You just can't. And he says the same thing to us today. And the first consequence that came immediately was that the baby conceived through that adultery, died, and if that wasn't bad enough, one rebellion after another happens against David, and the sword never does leave his house. In fact, 
Most prominently, it comes from within his house with two sons that rebel against him, Absalom and Adonijah. And David suffers these painful uh, bouts of guilt. It says in Psalm 32 that David said his spirit dried up in him as he contemplated his sin. And finally, he burst forth in confession. In Psalm 51, he, he cries out to God against whom he has sinned and he seeks forgiveness. And I think it's for these reasons that David is called the friend of God. And a man after God's heart, but it took severe correction on God's part to steer David away from the destruction of sowing to the flesh, continuing in sin. Now, when you suffer adversity, one of the first things you should do is examine your own heart and life and ask, is there sin in me? Your prayer may be parallel to that is, is like David Lord, reveal if there is any sin in me. Could this be, this trial specifically, could it be a corrective in my life? Is it addressing something that the Lord is trying to show and bring as a consequence so that I will break this sin pattern, I'll stop? Some of you, as you examine in the midst of a particular trial, you say, I can't link it to any specific thing. I don't think of it as, I don't think it's a corrective from the Lord. And this is where the second goal of of trials enters in, and that is that God often desires to prevent you from becoming reliant on yourself and comfortable with the things of the world. Perhaps you're a bit in that regard like a Job. Job was a man of faith. He believed in the true and living God. He served him with his whole heart. He'd been absolutely obedient and faithful. And I know that because Job 1 and 2 have Satan going before God and saying, look, you don't have anybody who's faithful to you. And God says, that's not true. There's Job. He's a man of faith. He's a righteous man. In fact, I'll let you go and take away everything from him, but his life and his faith will not fail. So, that's Job. He didn't know the backstory to what was happening. He just began to experience trials, began to experience suffering. And he conducted a self-examination, right? That's the early chapters of Job, and his friends help him out liberally. They're convinced that his issues are due to sin, that God is disciplining him in a corrective way. But Job doesn't accept that, doesn't, doesn't believe that. And he was right. And similarly, you'll take inventory sometimes. And like Job, you won't find anything obvious. Perhaps God is disciplining you with this second goal in mind, which is a prevention from sin. Now, as parents, Wendy and I are concerned about prevention. And that is to say, we want to create an environment for our children that will protect them from what could potentially harm them. There are certain things we don't allow them to do. Certain places we don't allow them to go, even certain people with whom we don't let them hang out alone. Our children over the years have often seen that as a hardship. How many of you have had a child say to you, why can't I? Right? Why can't I do that? Why can't I go there? Everybody else is doing that. Well, prevention and protection 
may be involved here. And they can be as little as saying to a child, don't step into a busy street without looking. There were times, especially when we were in busy parking lots, that Wendy and I would yell for our kids to stop, and it would temporarily traumatize them, right? How many of you have ever done that? Your child's just gleefully walking forward, and you yell from behind, and, they, and some of them start crying. But what happened? They stopped. They did not go into the parking lot where the cars were. Besides Job... The Apostle Paul is an illustration of this kind of goal of of prevention with discipline. I don't find anywhere in the New Testament where we see that God is punishing Paul for some sin that he harbored. And yet Paul suffers. He's beaten. He is shipwrecked. He's beaten with whips by the Jewish leaders. He's been beaten with rods by the Romans. Some of you might say, well, you know, Paul was told early on that he would be shown what he needed to suffer for God's name and then link it to some of the other activities. But what I want to suggest to you is that if we look at those years after that incident, when Paul's conversion from Saul to Paul, that he was following hard after God. He was living a life of obedience and sacrifice. And yet he continues to suffer big time, right? He's stoned, left for dead, so many things. Put in prison, hated, despised, thrown out of towns, victim of mobs that tried to kill him. And in 2 Corinthians twelve seven, Paul says this, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. And for the word thorn, he uses the Greek word meaning a sharpened stake. <laughs> so uh, the, the visual imagery is this sharpened stake that impales him. So God impaled me painfully. And the reason why, according to verse 7, is to keep me. Notice it's not to correct me. It's to prevent me from exalting myself. That's prevention. And the rest of the passage reads, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, My grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now listen carefully to this next part. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure. Wow, now we're, now we're getting extreme, most of you say. Okay, it's one thing to accept that this could be from God. It's another thing to say I'm joyful and glad, because that, that, that's a spot where a lot of us are kind of advancing to in our maturity, right? But this part, I will boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me and take pleasure in my infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. Why? What kind of mindset is it coming from? It's not coming from some zealous, crazy, psychotic Christian. It is coming from a person who says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And there's so much in that passage that's helpful to understanding Hebrews 12. We don't know what the thorn was that troubled Paul, but he was convinced that it was sent by Satan as a distraction. 
And so Paul's praying, as we all would pray, Lord, please remove this from me. Please don't let me have to keep suffering this sharpened stake that feels like it's in my gut everywhere I walk, whatever it was. But he's praying also in light of knowing that God is sovereign, acknowledging that God's even sovereign, as I said earlier, over Satan, and that this thorn is there, yes, directly from Satan, who wants to distract him, but allowed and ordained by God who intends to use it for something else, if he allows it to remain. And so after he's prayed several times, I think it's a good model for us as well. Sometimes when we're praying with regard to afflictions and trials, to pray for several times is fine. But notice he says, I prayed three times, and then I concluded, God wants us to be here. God wants us to remain. It's not about, for example, me stepping into an affliction and God saying, I want you to depend on me. I want you to turn to me for help. And when you come and you, and you show dependence and, and you reach out your hand, I will be there and I will, I will rescue you from this. It's not that type of situation. This is a situation where help me, help me, help me, right? Three times praying. God says, no, there's a reason for this. In which Paul then says, okay, this is God. God intends this to remain, to counter what? It's a discipline. A discipline is for my benefit. What is it benefiting? It is countering my tendency to exalt myself because God has blessed me with so many of these things. These revelations, these, this knowledge, even this ability to take the gospel to the Gentiles. God has given me all these things. I could easily fall into pride. And so God gives us as a constant reminder and we see that preventative aspect. And I, as I said, as I pointed out, I love how Paul describes God as uh, doing something that makes his strength perfect in our weakness. And Paul being able to say, all right, I know it's of you. Therefore, I'm going to be glad and I'm going to boast in this infirmity. I'm going to take pleasure in this persecution because I know that when I am weak, I am strong because that is the very moment that Christ's power is most displayed in me. I hope that makes sense to you. Because God is going to bring things into your lives that will prevent you from developing sins like pride, like lust, whatever it is that so easily ensnare you because you get to feeling self-sufficient, you get to feeling omnipotent, you get to the point where you're just cruising through life, not thinking about the Lord, thinking that you're in control of your situation, and God will bring something into your life to humble you. And that will prevent you from be continuing in that way, from becoming overly proud and self-reliant. So if you're evaluating God's discipline, you've done a self-examination to see if there's a specific sin issue in your life. You asked, was this corrective? You concluded, probably not. The next thing that's important to ask yourself is, is the Lord trying to make me remember that I don't have another breath unless he sustains me? 
Do I need to be reminded of the fact that I'm not in control? Do I need to be reminded that God has a purpose for my life, and that purpose is not determined by what I want in the moment, or even the goals that I've set for the long term? Do I need to be reminded simply that God lifts us up when we are weak? Maybe some of you are, have, have gotten pretty comfortable in, in being in charge, being a leader, being influential, important, and being self-reliant and powerful, and you've forgotten what it is to be weak. Well, God may bring something into your life, that sharpened stake, and it'll feel like you've been impaled, but there's a purpose for it. I really believe that God is... M- more concerned with what we are than with what we do. It's not that he's not concerned with what we do, but he's very concerned about who you are. And you all, just like I do, tend to underestimate the battle of the flesh and see the extent of pride and self-confidence and ambition and stubbornness and self-justification and lack of love and distrust of God that he sees in us. And so the Lord wants to make you recognize that you are dependent upon him and protect you. So correction, prevention, those are the first two goals. And the third goal is this, education. The paideia of God. One of the important values of suffering is to learn a very important lesson. God is sufficient. God is sufficient. Paul received sufficient grace when he needed it, but typically just enough. You see, God doesn't give you all of the divine strength that you need for the rest of your life. Instead, as Psalm 31.19 says, God's goodness tends to be stored up for those who fear him and handed out sufficiently for the day. Now, you are going to be expected to come before the Lord every single morning, every single afternoon, every single night, and pray for God's sufficiency. And for some of you, that may not be as reassuring as you might like because you don't like conflict and you highly value comfort. You'll read the Bible, for example, in Psalm 23 that says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, yet you are with me. Maybe you've read that many times and you love that psalm. But you think of it as David's psalm. You think of it as David writing about his personal experiences, and it's a sweet moment. Or you think about how that applied to something in the past. But you do not look forward to walking through a valley of the shadow of death again. Right? We, none of us do, I don't think. Wendy and I have been reading the story of Adoniram Judson, missionary to Burma, and so far... We're still early in the biography, but this young couple, Adoniram and Nancy Judson, before they even arrived in Burma, uh, first of all, they go with some other missionary friends, and that couple becomes pregnant while they're in Calcutta, India, because they're all kind of staging, trying to figure out where the Lord wants them to go. So they're in Calcutta, and trying to find a place to go. They finally, they actually, to be perfectly honest, they end up fleeing from Calcutta, trying to get a ship out to Burma rather than being sent back to England. And the couple that's their friends, the wife dies in childbirth. So the child dies, the wife dies, the friend 
becomes depressed, and they get separated. So then Adoniram and Nancy become pregnant. And no doubt, as they're thinking through this, they're remembering this incident just happened months earlier with their missionary friend. They lost a child. They lost a wife. Guess what happens to Adoniram and Nancy? They lose their child in delivery. They arrive in Burma. It's hard life. And soon after, Nancy dies. And so here's Adoniram, I would imagine, in Burma, by himself, no doubt, asking himself, how did I get here? (laughs) Why am I in this place? Right? Why is this happening to me? And the Bible says, God will supply all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think Judson learned that statement through theology, through sitting in the church pew and reading it or hearing it in a sermon? Or do you think that he learned it from experience? God will supply all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I want to suggest to you that the way the Christian life works, the way the paideia of God works, is that you don't learn it from hearing a sermon. And you don't learn it from reading your Bible in the mornings or working through the Bible in a year. You learn it from experience. You learn it from the loving discipline of God who teaches you what it, is, what it means to say, God will supply all my needs according to his richness in Christ Jesus. Again, Job is an illustration in this regard. His friends told him that he was afflicted because of sin. Even his wife, as if I should give him, curse God and die. No help. Job loses everything. He loses his children. He couldn't understand why all of these tragedies were happening to him. But then what did he learn? Now, before you answer that question, remember, there is never a time that God said, by the way, Job, let me tell you what's going on. I had this conversation with Satan, and I'm doing all of this to make a point to him. What he did say was, Be still. What he did say was, stop asking questions. Who are you and where were you when I created the world? And then at the end of the book, Job says this, and this is the great lesson of the book of Job. You ready for it? Job looks at God and says, I don't know any more now than I knew when I started. Except this, I have heard you. I have seen you. And though you slay me, yet I will praise you. That is the lesson of Job. And it took, I, I think, you know, we, sometimes we think of the, the story of Job as this is really just proving that he's a righteous man. No, I think there was an important process that is being done in the life of Job, a disciplining, a chastening of God towards the educational goal of showing him, Job, you are a righteous man, but you are righteous because you realize who you are. And your ears have heard me, your eyes have seen me, and you know that I am God. And you will still worship me. That is what he learned, and that's what we need to learn. We need to have that private education. Is God able to sustain a man when he loses everything that he has? 
Some of our church members have lost family members in this last year. Is God able to sustain a person when he loses some of the most important things in his life? Yes, God is. Is God able to allow you to overcome the bad advice of friends and the misdiagnosis of a problem? Yes. Is God enough when you're sitting in an excruciating disease that goes on and on without relief? Yes. Will you still fight for peace and joy and trust and faith? The answer is yes. And you can just fill in the blanks with any type of trial or affliction. And the educational goal of God is that you will get to the point that says, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Because God promises to be with you. And here's the irony. God has sovereignly brought that affliction, that trial into your life. But even as he is managing that part, he is also saying, my grace is sufficient. I am coming alongside of you. My strength is sufficient for the day. All of these things depend on me. And so the author of Hebrews is concerned that his readers are missing this point. And that's why verse 5 says, You have forgotten this exhortation that is addressed to you as sons. He's saying you are privileged to be facing these afflictions. Why are you asking if this is an accident? Why are you treating it as if you were just caught up in the random workings of a broken world? Why are you even treating it like it's persecution without any other context? That's not it. You have forgotten the exhortation that is given to you as a son. You are a son of the Father. And like an earthly father who desired your good and brought discipline into your life, God the Father is disciplining you for your benefit. He says... You have forgotten this exhortation. If you want to understand your troubles, remember what you've been told, and that's a good instruction for us. When we get to that point where we think this is an accident, we think it's persecution, we think it's living in a broken world, let's remember that the Word of God is there before us. Everything that we've done this afternoon on a small scale is expanded upon and clarified on a bigger scale from Genesis through Revelation. We have the whole story. And Romans 15, 14 says, whatever things were written before, that's Paul referring to the Old Testament, they were written down for our learning. So don't forget the exhortation and the instruction of Scripture. Because you will struggle with doubts. Any of you going through a difficult time right now? Any of you facing a trial or some affliction? Then you must engage those doubts. Do not let them overwhelm you. David writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? See, David had those doubts too. But he wrestled with them. He was constantly speaking to his soul, reminding himself of God's good purposes. And in fact, in the next verse, he says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? We know where our thoughts tend to go in these types of situations. They go to self-pity. 
They go to blame shifting. They go to other things as if God isn't in control. But enabled by God's sufficient grace, David wins the struggle, overcomes those doubts. And so he says in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 13, But I trust in your unfailing love, and my heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Hmm. So friends, it's time to, as verses 12 through 13, the end of our passage say, it's time to strengthen those hands that are hanging down. It's time to, as Wendy usually tells me, straighten up, honey. (laughs) You're starting to walk like an old man. Uh, It's time to straighten up the back. Time to strengthen the feeble knees. It's time to make straight paths for those feet. And to stop feeling sorry for ourselves and to realize that the trials that God brings our way are for our good, either for our correction, for the prevention of us growing reliant upon ourselves, or to teach us about his good ways. Let's pray. Father, you are the king of all things, and you do have perfect wisdom and perfect goodness. Lord, how could we fall into the question that what happens to us is outside of your control and how could we ever fall into the doubt that you don't desire what is what is good and yet it is so easy for us to do because we don't like conflict we don't like affliction and trial we tend to think that as we face it that that's somehow you turning your face from us but as we learn today it's quite the opposite Lord, that you will so often use trials as you turn your face towards us as a father who loves his child. And so, Lord, help us to be trusting, faithful, to strengthen our arms and our knees and to walk straight as we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.